Okay, this is a bit better. So today I'm going to be starting by asking a few questions, which you can simply answer by raising your hand or not raising your hand. Uh, so the first one is, where did you come from to get here? So we'll start with uh, Weybridge. I thought there would be a few people. Okay, Ottershaw, Adelstone. That's quite a few. That's and Chertsey? Did anyone come from even further than any of those places? Good. Okay. And then the next question is, how did you get here? So, firstly, by car. Probably most people. Yes. Uh, did anyone walk here? Well done. Uh, and did anyone, did anyone cycle? And well, I guess that's probably covered everything. But did anyone else? Did anyone get here by any other method of transport? No. Okay. And then final question will be: When did you get here? So first, nine o'clock. Uh, there were some people here. At nine o'clock. Uh, ten o'clock. Quarter past ten. Twenty-five past ten. Was anyone here at half past ten? Good. At least you're. Yes. You. Yes. Yeah. Everyone here should have been here. Anyway, uh, these are all quite interesting questions. Uh, but today, me and Sam, myself and Sam, are going to be looking at a potentially even more interesting question, and that is, why are we here? Which is the relevance of those questions, as you might see. So, okay, uh, why are we here? It's quite a big question. Uh, so I'll just be covering one or two of the main ideas. And what I'll be focusing on my half of the talk is answering the question that goes something along the lines of this. Why would the creator of the entire universe want to create mankind, let alone know and care for us? If you thought something along a similar vain, then you certainly wouldn't be alone. In fact, King David of Israel uh, wrote a psalm about this. He said, O Lord our Lord, this is part of Psalm 8, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies, to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? I think that this psalm quite sums up the question that I'm going to be looking at quite well. So, without further ado, I will begin from before the beginning, when there was God, and God alone. However, this doesn't mean that God was lonely. No, God's... This, no, no, quite the opposite. God's perfectly joyful, fulfilled, and complete in himself, and didn't need to create anything. Indeed, in Acts 17, verses 24 to 25, Paul rebukes the people of Athens for thinking that God needed to create them to be complete. He said, The God, of, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands, 
as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. C.S. Lewis also put it quite bluntly in his book, The Four Loves. He said that the doctrine that God was under no necessity to create is not a piece of dry scholastic speculation. It is essential. Without it, we can hardly avoid the conception of what I can only call a managerial God, a being whose function or nature is to run a universe, who stands to it as a head teacher to a school or a hotel manager to a hotel. To expand on the analogy a bit, uh, a hotel manager provides a service to a customer simply because it's his job. His most motivation to look after you is not because he cares for you, but rather that's just he does it out of a sense of obligation. It's it's what he does. Though, no, perhaps to get a better, perhaps to get a better idea of what God is like. We could say that he stands to the universe like a person opening a house, opening their house to a friend. They don't have to do it, and they look after their guests because they care for them, not because they feel obliged to. So to summarize, what is it that makes it so essential that God didn't have to create? It's because if God had to create, then it wouldn't have been out of love. And why is this important? If we look at First John chapter four verse eight, we find the answer. It says that whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Not God loves, but God is love. If he had not created out of love, then he would have been violating his own character. And but still, this sounds very unusual. How can God be love? It's because of a fundamental part of his nature, that although he is one being, God, he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because of this, he is relational in himself, and this means that he can be, is, and always will be love. Now, if God was just one, then his love would merely be self-love. But fortunately, God isn't just one, but three. And because of this, his love is a giving, sharing, overflowing love. And it's precisely because God's love is like this that He creates us. God didn't just want to keep His love, His Abundant love to himself, but to share it. Now we've looked at what it means for God to be love, but now this might be a good time to talk in more detail about what it means for God to be love. The love that God is is labelled with various names. For example, charitable love, unconditional love, agape love. But what is what? What makes this love different? What makes God's love so amazing? I think that the best description of God's love we can find is in that famous passage in First Corinthians thirteen. It says, "Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It always." Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. It's in this context that perhaps we can get a better understanding of what it means for God to be love. So now I'll read out that passage again, but this time replacing the word love for God. 
God is patient. God is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. Now by God's love and his wonderful creativity, he made us in his image so that we can enjoy him and have the capacity to receive his love so that we can engage in an authentic, intimate relationship with him. And talking of images and creation, we are now going to have a look at the images that you created earlier. I don't know where they are at the moment. So can I potentially have someone to hand these round? Thank you. People might not be able to see them. So once, yeah, once you're done, just pass them around. Okay, so now that you've had a look, we can continue. Okay, as I was saying, God made us for a relationship with him. However, because of our fallen nature, because we rejected God and put ourselves first, our relationship has been broken and we're incapable of producing such a love that God has for us. Nevertheless, God has and always has had a plan. We see in Ephesians 1 that before the creation of the earth, it was in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Out of God's overflowing love, he not only wanted to create and love us, but he wanted to, astonishingly, offer us the gift of sonship. To use the words of John in 1 John chapter 3, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. The wonder of it fascinates John. Yet, as we read on, we see that he also recognized the costs involved. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. But this sacrifice only makes God's adoption of us even more incredible. He doesn't just say that we can be his children and that be that, that, be that but he endured, com- he endured complete humiliation by coming down to earth as one of us and facing the the disgrace of the cross, all so that we might be able to call him Father. 
As a result of our adoption as sons, we become conscious of God's love towards us by the Holy Spirit being in us, and we can love like him. We love because he first loved us. And by this, we can carry out the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. By this, we can enter into the personal relationship with God he made us for as we respond to God's love. So then, to conclude, before there was anything to love, God, due to his very nature, had no end of love, out of which he chose to create mankind so that we could have a relationship with him as his children, and we could love him with all that we are. Now earlier, I mentioned that this topic is very big, so I would only be able to look at part of the answer, but I feel like it would be beneficial to give an idea of the full picture. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Man's primary purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glorifying God essentially consists in four main things. To appreciate him and his works. To worship and keep our minds centered on him. To obey and dedicate ourselves to him. And finally, to love and take delight in him. These four things, although they are distinct, overlap and further each other so that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Loving God is part of glorifying God and enjoying him, and, as a result, is part of of the answer as to why we're here. And now I'm going to hand over to Sam. Thank you, Peter. Uh, so, hello for anyone who doesn't know me. I'm Sam. Uh, I've been going to this church for, I think, since I was born, most likely. Uh, and I'm going to talk about what our purpose is. So, I'm going to start similar to Peter. I'm going to ask um, uh, everybody, um, what is God's purpose for us? And firstly, we're just going to touch on like us as individuals. our purpose as a church? So the overall answer is quite simple. It's just to love and follow God in our day-to-day lives. So how can we do this? To do this, we can pray and speak to him and follow the commandments that he, that he has given us and worship him with all of our heart and mind. Um, starting with the Great Commission, let's look at how Jesus instructs us to follow him. 
In Matthew 16, verse 18 to 20, Then Jesus came and came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. So I'm going to now like explain what the instructions were before the Great Commission were. So the instructions were still f to follow God, but it was different, because God's chosen people were given commandments to follow, and that was mostly what they went, what they went by in their lives. Um, but then Jesus came along, and what happened when Jesus came along? Well, he changed everything. He came down and died so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins, that there was no longer a barrier of sin between us and God. He also empowers us to go out and spread the good news. And he sums up how to do this in the Great Commission. So I'm going to go through, verse by verse, what it means, basically. Um, verse 18 is, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, so this basically means God has all of the power and we can achieve anything through his power. However, we should remember where this has come from, because th and that's why it's mentioned first, so we can remember that all of all the authority and power that is given to us comes from him. An example of this is in Acts 3, 12 to 13. Um, when Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. And in verse 19, it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Where have we heard that before? Um, so, how are we supposed to make disciples? We can do this in multiple ways. We can tell people about Jesus and explain what he did for us, or we can just live our lives showing other people God's kindness through love, uh, kindness and love through things that we do. In two Corinthians, it show it rephrases in a very confusing way. This. All of this is from God who reconciled us to, to himself through Christ and gave the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against us and he has committed himself he, he has committed us to the message of reconciliation lots of reconciling um, this basically means that Jesus has brought us back to God and we need to continue the work that he started by bringing more people to him um uh yeah the salt of the salt and the light also relates to how we should how we are able to make disciples you are the salt of the earth but if salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot you are the light of the world a town built on a hill cannot be hidden neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, 
let your light shine before others that may see your that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven so what does the salt of the earth actually mean well salt gives us salt gives things flavor but how can we oh but we can lose our saltiness by being diluted by other religions and cultures because the only way to actually remove saltiness from salt is to dilute it like in a chemical way um, and salt in Jesus' time was very valuable it was used to preserve and flavour a large percentage of food it was also used as a payment by the Romans so if salt lost its flavour it would be devastating to the owner because it's worth a lot in the same way that we are worth a lot in the eyes of the Lord we need to show God's goodness in our everyday lives we can do this by displaying the fruits of the spirit so a way that I think about it is we are all torches and torches can't light themselves we carry God's flame and we should use it to help light others up with the passion and desire to see God in our lives <coughs> Jesus tells us how to display our lights in a, a high place so that they cannot be so that they can be seen and not to hide them Part of our purpose is for people to see God's glory through us. Video. So, as you can see in the video, the flames on the torches ignited each other, showing that we need to ignite people by giving them our holy fire and at the end they all came together and when we come together and as Beacon Church and as the church as a whole our light burns brighter and stronger when the torch in the video burns on its own it displays a fascinating flame but when the torches come together the flame burns so much brighter this is what the church is supposed to be like we bring God's light together as a beacon of his love in the community so now I'm going on to going to go on to verse 20 and teaching them everything and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. It's encouraging to hear that Jesus will always be with us and we'll never be alone. Cuz in our mission we should be relying on his power but not ours. Which goes back to the part in Acts where Peter says, "Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk?" So ultimately, this is God's mission, and the best way of taking part is to let God act through us. So how does he empower us? He sends the Holy Spirit down to bless us and fill us with joy and courage to speak about him and fill other people. In Acts 2, it has the story of Pentecost, which is a very long story. It's like 39 verses, and I'm not willing to read them all out, so I'm just going to summarize it. Um, it, during Pentecost the Holy Spirit was sent down to fill and bless the disciples it empowered them to spread the word among people of Jerusalem and then later the world so in conclusion we need to love God follow the and follow the commandments he has set us we also need to pray for the Holy Spirit because it helps us and it's the force behind what we do so I'm just going to pray now for the Holy Spirit to be with us as we go out. Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that you will just send your holy fire down as we go back to work and school and wherever we go. 
you'll just display your light through us and we will be beacons of love and kindness and we will just display your beauty to everyone we meet and so now the band are going to come up to play one more song